weary traveler. Welcome to the inn. Sit, sit, rest your feet. Why, it's a long journey on the road to Tavalon. Have a cup of tea. Or maybe air? The light. Why, just in time for the entertainment. Here are your hosts, Tracy and Amber. Hello and welcome to episode two. I'm here with my friend Amber. And I'm here with my friend Tracy. And this is The Road to Tarvalin, a Wheel of Time podcast recapping the books, uncovering fan theories, discussing the upcoming TV show on Amazon Prime, and unpacking the many intricacies of this incredible series. Today, we dive into New Spring, the prequel Robert Jordan wrote to the Wheel of Time series. We've got some background information about the prequel that we want to go over, and then we will dive into the first two chapters. We offer a big thank you to everyone managing the Wiki Wheel of Time fandom page for the depth of information gathered here. It's an amazingly useful tool, and we are super grateful. Last week was spoiler-free, and we're going to stick to that for the first half of the episode, but the other half is where we will be digging in into how these books feed into the rest of the series. So if you haven't read all the books, we encourage you not to listen to the second half of the show. We would never turn listeners away except with the best of intentions. We wouldn't want to ruin the experience with these books and the characters. One of the potential spoilers is going to be a discussion around the Crimson Rod, the Turangriol Elaine used in the Path of Daggers. I wanted to know more about that last episode, and the Wheel of Time community did not let me down. So <laughs> stick around for that. It's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. So we dug into a little bit of the background information on New Spring, and everything is pulled from Wikipedia, um, everyone's favorite resource for research. Um, so as we said, this is a, a prequel in the Wheel of Time series. Um, it was originally published as a novella in the speculative fiction anthology entitled Legends, Short Novels by the Masters of Modern Fantasy. The anthology was released on September 15, 1999, between the 1998 publications of The Path of Daggers, which is book eight, and the 2000 publication of Winter's Heart. Now, Jordan came back to it and explained the novella into a standalone novel, which was published in 2004. Between the 2003 publication of Crossroads of Twilight, book 10, and 2005 publication of Knife of Dreams. Jordan had originally conceived of writing a trilogy in the prequels that would have focused more on Tamil Thor's history and Lan and Moraine's early search for the Dragon Reborn. Unfortunately, Jordan was not happy with the reception of New Spring and decided to shelf the idea of completing the other two books. His death in 2007 makes the completion of the trilogy highly unlikely. The story begins in the last day of the Aeol War and the Battle of the Shining Walls around Tarvalin. Primary locations are Tarvalin and the Borderlands. Moraine, Domadrid, and Swan Sanche are the main focus of the books, telling of their rise to sisterhood among the Aes Sedai and how Moraine met and bonded Lan Mandragoran. It also explains how Moraine and Swan were present to hear a foretelling, the foretelling that announced the birth of the Dragon Reborn, and how this set them on a path that would later become the central storyline in the Wheel of Time series. New Spring is also the first of Jordan's works to be adapted to graphic novel format. There are eight issues beginning publications in July 2005. All eight graphic novels were collected and re-released together as a single graphic novel in January 2011. 
It includes extra bonus material of developmental art, script pages, and correspondence between Jordan and Chuck Dixon, who adapted the book to graphic novel format. All right, so I think we can go ahead and dig in, and our first chapter is The Hook. So starting out, we have Lan and his men, and they're camped out basically in the dark, in the snow, and they are part of the Great Coalition. And the Great Coalition is 10 of the 14 kingdoms of the Westlands, and they've gathered to stop the invading Aeol. Now, Lan's walking around while some of his men are sleeping, and he threatens them with telling the soldiers' friends about finding them asleep, which seems to shake the soldiers up just as much as severely berating them would have done. Next off, we get this really great introduction to Bukama, and I'm really excited about this guy because he's Lan's close friend, his trainer, his mentor, and... It kind of leads me to think that they've got a pretty close relationship. A little background that we get from Lan is that Bukama brought baby Lan out of Malkir. So when the blight started encroaching on Malkir, baby Lan was basically smuggled out. And um, Bukama literally strapped Lan to his back and 20 men set off. Now, on this journey, only five made it out alive. And... Skipping forward to where we're at now in New Spring, Bukama is the only man left. So this is Lan's, pretty much his last link left to Malkir, I would say. And I think that makes the relationship one that would be pretty close. Mm -hmm. We get this really great quote from Lan about Bukama. And he says that Bukama is steel clothed in flesh, steel his will, duty his soul. So I, you kind of get the idea that Bukama is not someone that is to be fucked with. <laughs> <laughs> so another interesting aspect of Bukama is he quotes that he thinks the Aiel are dark friends. And something that's interesting about this is Lan agreed with this before he started out in the war. Um, mm -hmm. Now, leading up to where we're at, he's kind of changed his mind and he doesn't really believe that the Aiel are dark friends. But Lan is a man of his word and once he joined this army, he can't bring himself to back out. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is kind of a... I think this is maybe one of the things that would be more important to people from Malkir. But... Um, it's a lot about duty and they're keeping their words. So as this is going on, a messenger comes in the night on horseback and Lan hears a horse. Everyone kind of tenses up for a moment until they realize that it's a century from Tyr. Now, he's obviously come with news, but the first thing that makes me interested in this messenger is Lan notices that he smells of roses and he thinks to himself, 
pretty much like, okay, this guy's an idiot. We're going up against the Aiel, and he doesn't <laughs> think that the Aiel wouldn't smell him coming. Like, these are the most, you know, the Aiel are supposed to be some of the best warriors in this universe. And here comes this guy on his horse, like, reeking of Rose. <laughs> the second information we get on this guy is, well, he's kind of an asshole. He's pretty disrespectful to Lan and Bukama. Mm-hmm. Um, something that is supposed to happen is the man should dismount and um, introduce himself. And he doesn't really do that. He just kind of sits on his horse and starts, you know, giving orders. Bukama tenses up a little bit. Lan has to kind of like put his hand on his shoulder and (laughs) ease him down because, yeah. Um, So this messenger from Tyr um, says the Aiel are heading east and Lord Amaris wants Lan to take his men to the hook and use the hammer and anvil tactic. Mm -hmm. Now the hook is I believe, like a geological um, structure. Um, It's obviously like a high ground. So that would be a nice position for Land and his men to be ready. Um, And he wants to employ this hammer and anvil tactic. Now, this is something that interests, interests me because I think with Robert Jordan's military experience, this, I think, is something that kind of comes through. He understands, you know, these type of things. And the hammer and anvil tactic is actually over 2,000 years old. So I'm not 100% sure, but I think... I think one of the first people to deploy this tactic was Philip of Macedonia, and you might have heard of his son, Alexander the Great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's essentially an encirclement tactic. So the infantry would engage the enemy and kind of hold them in place. And what you would see in, you know, back in Alexander the Great's time is you would have one squadron of men really tightly compact into almost like a brick-like formation. They would have their spears and their shields and kind of employ like a shield wall tactic. Now they would come up against the other army who would be basically in the same formation. So you've got these two like tightly packed bricks basically of men just pushing up against each other and trying to get their spears in between their shields. And that would be the hammer part mm-hmm. of this. And it's, you know, it's just a meat grinder. It's not a good place to be. <laughs> but then the hammer tactic would be basically the cavalry, men on horseback, swinging around and attacking from behind. And this would force the enemy to face attacks from two different directions. And so essentially the cavalry can come in from behind and just kind of like chip away at people and break up the formation. So Lan agrees to this, and he says he and his men will act as the anvil. And the sentry from Tyr lets him know that, you know, there's about 600 Aiel. And Lan has less than 400, closer to 300. Mm -hmm. But they agree, and Lan and his men set off for the hook. Now, as they're waiting, it's, you know, silent the horses are getting impatient the men are getting impatient and eventually we see the aiel kind of coming out of the tree line Mm -hmm. and this is another part that i love but they're all veiled and (laughs) if they are veiled you know what's coming so storm 
Yeah, the death storm. <laughs> and as Lan is watching the Aiel pour out of the tree line, he's counting, you know, 500, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000. And it's kind of just a oh shit moment. Mm-hmm. Now, Amari's um, sounds his trumpets, which is really odd to me. And we'll get into that later. And as the Aiel are pouring out, we get this really, really great quote from Bukama. And he just tells Lan and the men to embrace death. And Lan kind of looks around and he knows he won't withdraw, even though they are greatly outnumbered. And his men won't do that either. So as they're waiting for this impeding doom, the Aiel... um, are coming out and one in the front of the formation raises a spear uh the whole company of aiel stopped dead in their tracks and lan is just thinking what is going on then all the aiel raise their spears and we hear the aiel start chanting on a line and lan is i think pretty well versed in the old tongue so he understands this to mean something like one man alone. Then um, the Aiel just move away from the ridge and keep on moving in the other direction, leaving Lan and all of his men basically just standing there. And Lan's last thoughts are, should they follow? What should we do? And then he thinks he needs to have a chat with this Lord Amaris about Mm -hmm. this whole situation. And that is the summary of the first chapter of The Hook. Very nicely done. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, So I'm going to cover chapter two, which is titled A Wish Fulfilled. Um, And I really got into this chapter because it gives us a peek at Moraine before she becomes the Aes Sedai we meet in the main series. It also gives a look at novices versus accepted versus Aes Sedai. Mm. And since we talked about that last week, it feels good to kind of have that like reinforce some of the information with what's happening in this chapter. So the chapter is from the point of view of a young accepted Moraine Domadred. She is standing by a drafty window next to her best friend and fellow accepted Swan Sanchez. Within this introduction to Moraine, we are made aware of her growing up in the Sun Palace in Kyrian. Kyrian. <laughs> I say everything wrong. <laughs> Just do it however, feel, however it feels. Okay. Um, the Sun Palace in Kyrian. She is standing here in, on direct orders from the Amarillan Sea, Tamara Aspenya, Aspenya, and the keeper of the Chronicles, Guitara Moroso who sit on the other side of the room, closer to the fire, and visibly distracted from the duties they are trying to accomplish. It is also at this time that we know the city of Tarvalon is under siege. The smell of smoke enters the room, but is not from the chimneys, but of burned villages around Tarvalon. I love this. Right? <laughs> I love this chapter. <laughs> it was, I think I've read it like three times at this point, like just to kind of like soak it all in. Um, the burning, yeah, because, you know, she's saying it's not the chimneys, but everything around Tarvalon is burning. It's like, oh, yeah. the doom. <laughs> yes, that's exactly how it feels. Just that little bit entered in there just like gives this ginormous picture of what's happening around them. Yeah. Um, so she frets over whether or not the battle has resumed outside the walls of Tarvalon, and her frustration is centered around the fact that she knows 
it's her uncle who has started this war, who's the king of Kyrian, King Laman. Observation of the Aes Sedai that touches on what we talked about last week. Um, there's the ageless quality of the Aes Sedai. And in the book, it says, at a glance, you might think she was no more than 25, perhaps less than a second glance would say a youthful 45 or 50. And this is remarked about Gitara, who has white hair, throwing her age into question even more. Um, and age is a touchy subject in the tower, and asking his sister her age is considered extremely rude. Important to know, Gitara possesses the rare talent of foretelling, which allowed her to speak of what was in the future. Uh, Moraine knows it's foolish to hope to be present during one of Gitara's foretellings, but she hopes for it anyway. And Moraine also observes that, observes that even though Gitara is writing a letter, she's barely filled half the page in front of her in the four hours that Moraine has been present, and the Ermelin hasn't stirred to really observe the paper spread out in front of her. Moraine sees this as a sign of how worried the two women are, and that in turn worries Moraine. The book says she bit at her lip in furious thought, which is just so unlike the Moraine we know in the books later on. Um, all of the Aes Sedai are outside the tower offering assistance where they can, especially for healing the wounded. Um, and one of the three oaths that we did not mention last week is that Aes Sedai cannot use the power as a weapon unless it is in defense of their lives or the lives of their warders or against Shadow Spawn. So they wouldn't have been sent out of the tower to be like participants in the battle but they would have been sent out to help with the healing aspect of soldiers who have been taken down in the fighting um and again one of the other lines that was in support of what we talked about last week was moraine thinking i said i could not lie yet they often spoke obliquely and they were not above misdirection so Moraine observes that Swan has already mastered a level of self-assurance that she envies and does not feel she matches at all, but they are mischievous and sweet in their own way with each other. Moraine and Swan share closeness both as friends and in their abilities with the One Power. They were even raised to accepted on the same day. They were raised from novice to accepted in three years, a very short time compared to other novices. Moraine's inner monologue is interrupted by the sounds of hundreds of trumpets reaching the tower. She is sent out to see if there is any news from the battlefield that had not been brought to her yet. Maureen does as she's told, and as she suspected, there has not been any news from the battlefield at this time. The novice she comes across is older than she is, but the fact that Maureen is accepted makes her the superior in the situation. And like I really liked this. Uh, it says, To novices accepted were only a tiny step below Aes Sedai. And the accepted would sometimes try to practice being like as Aes Sedai as they could, but they could only do that with novices. And some accepted would try it on the servants, but the servants know that in Aes Sedai <laughs> eyes, accepted were not a small step below the sisters, but a small step above the novices. So it's I feel like... pecking order. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I was like, oh, that's so good to put that in there because it just like really quickly like sinks in. This is how it looks to the Aes Sedai and the novices, the accepted. Um... There is nothing new to report, so Moraine returns to the room where the Amarillin and the Keeper of the Chronicles are waiting. Moraine is just about to tell Tamara that there is no news from the battlefield as she begins to hand a cup of tea to Gitara. And at this moment, Gitara has a foretelling. Moraine was just offering Gitara her own cup, but before she could reply, the Keeper jerked to her feet, bumping the table so hard that the ink jar overturned, spreading a pool of black across the tabletop. Trembling, she stood with her arms rigid at her sides and stared over the top of Moraine's head, wide-eyed with terror. 
It was terror, plain and simple. He is born again, Guitar cried. I feel him. The dragon takes his first breath on the slopes of Dragon Mount. He is coming. He is coming. Light help us. Light help the world. He lies in the snow and cries like the thunder. He burns like the sun. <laughs> Did you get chills? I yes. got chills reading that. I have goosebumps. goosebumps. Same. <laughs> Same. Dang. They are kicking shit off. It's going right down. It's straight from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so once the pronouncement ends, Guitar falls forward into Moraine's arms, dead. Tamara hopes that there is some spark of life for her to find in her keeper's body that will allow her to be healed, but it is useless. Death cannot be healed. This moment of battle and uncertainty, the death of her keeper, is most unfortunate and untimely. The Emerlin confirms that both Swan and Moraine understand what Katara has just foretold and the potential consequences this news brings. Tamara swears both Moraine and Swan to secrecy, telling them that, in order to keep the secret, they should lie if asked if they know anything, even to another sister. She forces home the point that they must tell no one of what they had heard. And then, at the end of the chapter, flipping pages, (laughs) um, Moraine thinks, I wish to hear a foretelling, Moraine thought as she made her final curtsy before leaving, and what I received was a foretelling of doom. Now she wished very much that she had been more careful of what she had wished for. Careful what you wish for. (laughs) Oh my god. Uh, So that's like where the, that's where the title comes in. And like just a little side note about this chapter, because we can't get into all of the details, of course, but I love how Jordan sets the scene. Like... Mm -hmm to the drafty windows, to the clothing that they wear, like everything about the scene, you can just see it as you're reading it. So it's I think very, that's... It's very intimate. It is. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, so I think that kind of finishes up our spoiler-free section. The Should recap we... is the over. The recap is done. So we're going to move to the spoilers now. And if you haven't read the books, again... If you move forward and you listen to this and we ruin something for you, we tried not to let that happen. (laughs) (laughs) So do you want to take chapter one? Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess this isn't so much a spoiler as it is kind of a question. So we've got this kind of like mysterious action here with the Aiel. So there was obviously, you know, in the beginning there was the Trolloc Wars and then the Blight and then the Aiel started attacking. Mm -hmm. And to some people, I think Lan mentions this this as he's, you know, thinking like, are they Dark Ones? So what's going on with the Aiel? Why are they attacking in the first place? Why did they come in droves and start, you know, doing what they're doing? And then second off, this whole um, battlefield scene that we get with land that doesn't happen. We -hmm. have no idea why the Aiel retreated. It's just so odd. And, you know, everyone's kind of just thinking like, what? (laughs) What's going on? Yeah. And then furthermore, we get this really great introduction to what the Aiel are calling to Lan. Mm-hmm. And Tracy, you said that you are like fascinated by this. Like, how do they know who he is or what his yep. ancestry is? Because mm-hmm. Lan obviously is 
royalty in his own right. And, you know, he's just kind of like bumming around as a battle leader. Like, we don't exactly know for sure what's going on with Manetherin, but we've only kind of been clued in a little bit. So the the Aiel are saying, on a line, and it means a man alone or something like a man who is an entire nation. Mm-hmm. And something that I thought was really interesting with this word on a line in the old tongue is when it first came up, I was reading, um, I don't remember at what point it was. It was one of the earlier books, though. And when I first saw it, I noticed that a line is, that's actually German for alone. So I'm an intermediate German speaker. So when I read this, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. A line alone. And, you know, we get this kind of like cool, um, this cool insight into maybe how Jordan decided to write things in the old tongue where he incorporated, you know, different languages from, Mm -hmm. you know, different places in our world. And I think that's really cool. I think that's a really interesting thing. So I'm sure we'll have to get more into the old tongue later on in other chapter or in in other episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, Was there anything that you wanted to add to that, Tracy? Um, I didn't really have anything for chapter one as far as okay. spoilers went. I was really interested in the um, in the fact that the ILC land as they do, and they like basically salute him and then yeah. turn in the other direction. Yeah, and and, you, and that's the thing. Like we don't, we, you know, if you're just like looking at this, you don't realize that it's a salute. Like mm-hmm. it could it could mean anything. It could. But with some backstory from the previous books, we know that <laughs> it means something. Something yeah. very important. Yeah. I just I how the ILC land is it's just one of the things that I'm I'm really fascinated by. Um and then did you have something on Lord Mary's as well? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So First off, we get his century, who's kind of douchey, and (laughs) then we get this, you know, introduction to Lord Amari's where he starts sounding his trumpets, Mm -hmm. but to me, this makes no sense whatsoever, and Lan even Mm -mm. thinks the same thing. Um, He's confused by it. Yeah. So for this whole hammer and anvil tactic to work, the cavalry, or which would be Lord Amaris' men, mm-hmm. need to come out of nowhere. It should be kind of a surprise attack. So yeah. them sounding horns and giving away their location is the absolute last thing that he should be doing. Mm-hmm. So to me, like, he's either, you know, I don't know, is he trying to get everyone killed mm-hmm. or is he completely incompetent? So <laughs> it's not making much sense. Um. So I think that's kind of a mysterious thing. And I, you know, I have no idea if we'll get any closure on that, but it was just Mm -hmm. something that interested me and, you know, I wanted to look more into. Yeah. So um, I did find a couple of things that I thought were interesting as far as um, this century Mm -hmm. And how Lan is thinking, like, oh, like, he smells so strongly of roses. He would never be able to sneak up on anyone. Mm -hmm. 
And I thought this was really, really cute because it's kind of like a callback to Eye of the World where Nynaeve was able to sneak up on Lan and Moraine and they are both like gobsmacked. This, you know, this young girl just was able to sneak up on a warder and an Aes Sedai and Nynaeve being Nynaeve is just, you know, like, well, I spent a lot of time in the woods, you know, she did some like, um hunting or something as a child like sneaking up on rabbits or whatnot mm -hmm. and she just you know thinks like oh i just have you know some experience doing this so i thought that was really cute um and then another thing that i noticed is this quote from bukama to lan where lan tells him you know embrace death and we mm -hmm. get this like mentoring moment between lan and the man that's basically taught him everything he knows and I thought this was really cool because um in the series we get a lot of not a lot but we get some interaction between Lan and Rand and there's you know pretty much like a whole book where he's mentoring Rand and showing him all of the sword forms and when when Bukama tells him embrace death, it completely reminded me of when Lan told Rand, um, and he he's explaining to him what sheathing the sword means. So it was kind of like this mentoring moment being passed down from Bukama to Lan to Rand. And I really love the quote about sheathing the sword. I'll just go ahead and read it. There will come a time when you must achieve a goal at all costs. It may come in attack or in defense, and the only way will be to allow the sword to be sheathed in your own body. When the price is worth the gain, and there is no other choice left to you, that is called sheathing the sword. Remember it. This was probably one of my favorite quotes in the earlier book, so I just saw this kind of this interesting moment between, you know, kind of like handing down this knowledge from one person to another. Yeah. And Lan does spend a lot of time with Rand, like practicing the sword in particular. And I I think this one might come from um, the Great Hunt, like I early in so. the Great Hunt. Yeah. Yeah. When and he, I, before Rand meets, or around the time Rand, Rand meets Swan. Yeah. 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 And like, um, I love, I love the part where Lan and Rand are walking across the courtyard to go meet the Amarillan. Yes. And yes. Lan gives him like, what is it? Like cat crosses the courtyard or whatever, like gives him this command and they both change how they walk and they're walking together looking like badasses. And I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They start swaggering. <laughs> <laughs> it's the swagger stance. Yeah. Yeah. I really like, Every time I read that section, I get, like, a little chill. I love it. Yeah. It's really good. Mm-hmm. But I like the observation of, like, how it's a passed-down thing. Because yeah. if it passed down to land from Bukama, then obviously it's something that has been passed down from generation to generation right. as well. Right, So it's very much a nod back to land's ancestry. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And I'm really interested in more, learning more about Malkir. Yeah. Hopefully we get more. Yeah. I hope, I'm hopeful I hope. for that too. Yeah. And then 
what I liked about this was that the book, this chapter is told from Lance's perspective. And this is actually really lovely in its own way because it's the only time we get a chapter from his perspective um, that's written by Robert Jordan. Because the later books, I want to say the last three books, have a land point of view, but they're written by... Uh, Brandon Sanderson. Okay. And so it's really neat to like get an opportunity yeah. to read Jordan the way Jordan would write for Land. Yeah. So I liked that a lot. Yeah, that's really good. That's a really good observation. Oh, thank you. I'm a, I'm a genius. I don't know if you know that or not. <laughs> um, yeah. Did you have anything else on chapter one? No, I think we can keep going here. Okay. So on chapter two, I knew Marie and Swan were close, but I had never really thought about them as, like, best friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just this really human and fallible side of Moraine, and it's refreshing because we are so accustomed to seeing her in control of herself, her mm-hmm. emotions, the situations around her. And the little fumbles that she makes in this second chapter really give a lot more depth to Moraine as a character. And I I really appreciated that. Um the big catch for me in this chapter. <laughs> you had to point it out to me. I didn't catch it. <laughs> um, there's a dark friend. There is someone who becomes Black Aja mentioned in this chapter. And it's Tamail Kinderod. Kinderod. Um, she was an Aes Sedai of the Grey Aja. She was also Black Aja and one of uh, Leandrin's group of Black sisters. Boo. Uh, boo. <laughs> boo. <laughs> Thumbs down. Um, she is described as a fox-faced Carinian. Is she with... the one that they always re- uh, refer to as like vulpine or something? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, she has very big blue eyes and shoulder-length dark hair. Um, and she appears fragile, but apparently she's quite sadistic towards people. Um, she was an accepted in the tower during the Isle War, which is how she's like linked up with Swan and Moraine because they are as mm-hmm. well. Um, and what it said, I think I found this on um, the Wiki Wheel of Time page, but it says, even as a novice, her habit of bullying was noticed, which was why she was kept so long as a novice. As an accepted, she seemed to have been broken out of it, but she was noted for being very strict with novices. In fact, she was a complete sadist and enjoyed hurting people physically and emotionally. We don't like her. No, she's pretty awful. Like, even among the other black sisters, she has this reputation for being extra awful and super sadistic. And I think, I think she's part of, like, the little, um, like, when Mogidian comes in and she, like, rounds up with the the Black Aja sisters and then she like shields uh Leandrin Leandrin um mm-hmm. and Leandrin tries appealing to the two Aes Sedai that are taking her away and Timail is one of them um and of course Timail was like no way nope. yeah and Mogidian gives her permission to kind of like do whatever she wants to and Giving somebody who's sadistic that kind of power over someone is exceptionally cruel, whether Mogidian realized that mm-hmm. Timail was like that or not. So I thought that was really, like, I think you had to, like, have read the series a few times to actually catch that she's mentioned right there. Um, 
And I also love the reference to Elada. Um, so oh, when Moraine, God. Yes. right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so when Moraine is thinking about Elada and she thinks of her as a detestable woman, um, and all I could think of was how large a role Elada is going to play in the treatment of Moraine's closest friend, the yes. split of the tower, the rebellion inside the tower. Fucking Elida. Right? I kind of just, I kind of hate her. What does what does Equaine call Elida when she, do you remember when Equaine um, is captured and she has to serve Elida and she's like bringing like a pitcher of water or something? I think she calls her, did she call oh, I, her a coward or something? It's very possible. I, I don't, don't remember. remember yeah, because yeah. that's later in the books and i'm not quite as familiar with the later series as i am with the early series so and i'm still getting through book six just very slowly right now um another reread <laughs> right <laughs> i don't mind i really enjoy going through it and actually um my husband just started reading the series as well and it's really fun because like He'll sit next to me in bed and I'll hear him kind of chuckle about something and I'll be like, where are you? Tell me, tell me. (laughs) What's happening? And like, he'll start to tell me and I'll just smile and he'll be like, you're just smiling. And I'm like, yeah, because I can't tell you what happens next. (laughs) You just find out for yourself, honey. It's going to be real fun. Okay, so I think that it's fascinating to be given this moment that has only... So this is in reference to the prophecy that Gitara gives about the dragon being reborn and it only gets mentioned like kind of briefly in the in like the main series but to get this moment from Moraine's point of view is so cool (laughs) like you don't always get to go back and experience the things that happen that are so influential to like the main central storyline of the series and so it was really fun to like I mean this could almost yeah this could almost be like like a prelogue to you know eye of the world or something because it's Mm -hmm. so important I mean this is this is the beginning this is the very most important part of the whole series starting off yeah deep (laughs) I agree I agree and to like have her just collapse dead like, what the heck? That was crazy. And I have to wonder, um, so this moment when the Emerald and Seat had no choice but to trust to accept it, I wonder if this helped Swan make her choice later on when she chooses Egwene and Nynaeve to hunt out the Black Aja. You told that- me you told me about this and <laughs> I thought this was such a great, you know, such a great observation. Thank this you. Is so good. Yeah, because, I mean, she knew that even though an acceptant wasn't a fully trained Aes Sedai, they would have advantages in ways a full sister would not, like being able to lie and pass for something other than an Aes Sedai should they need to. So so the Amarlin was basically like, hey, by the way, if someone asks you about this, lie. Mm-hmm. And you can because you're not sworn to the oath rod. Right. So it makes it so that they have, like, they're, and I mean, Egwene and Nynaeve are both really powerful. And my understanding is that Moraine and Swan are as well. But I think Egwene and Nynaeve might be more powerful in the one power than Swan and Moraine are. Um, 
So you think maybe the seed was planted here. Yeah, that this yeah. is this you might be able to like recruit from this group of women if you find people who could fit in for that kind of need. Um, so I just thought that that was I just right. thought that was really right. neat. Yeah. No, that's um, really good because it thanks. evens the playing field because Black Aja can lie, as we saw with Varen. Mm-hmm. You know, when she's like, your dress, it's, what did she say? It's green. And Egwene is like, what? Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> so, like, sending them off to recruit or recruiting them to go off and, you know, search for the Black Aja, it levels the playing field because they can lie, too. So, mm-hmm. I mean... They've got, you know, it, it's it's an advantage, definitely. Yeah. And even though, like, Nynaeve and Egwene are not trained to the same level as the Black Aja sisters would have been, mm-hmm. they were, I think they were more powerful than all of them. Like, I think their well, strength it, was more. Yeah. Like... Okay, so, like, Egwene is, like, the forever A student who just, you know, like, you know, like, anything that she's given, she's, you know, she does it to the max. Like, Mm -hmm. when she was training with the wise ones, she Mm -hmm. did amazing. And she, you know, she learns, she's a quick learner. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously that's why they're like, hey, you know, you want to, you want to be Amarlin's seat? Of course they thought they could, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Pull her strings. Yeah, and make her do what they wanted to. And it didn't work, but no. so so she's, you know, a badass in her own right. And then Nynaeve is just one of the most powerful Aes Sedai to have existed. Mm-hmm. I think at one point we meet a Seafolk girl who's a really mm-hmm. young girl who is stronger than Nynaeve, but still not as, um, you know, skilled at this point. She doesn't have the same training. Yeah. But Nynaeve is just, oh, my God. Like, her, you know, she, she cleansed Sidene. Uh-huh. And her Sidon. battle yeah. with uh, Mogidian when so they're in. So good. What, I think Elaine says that she felt she felt women uh, channeling enough of the power to shake the castle down. Like, <laughs> yeah. God, and like when Nynaeve, I love her. <laughs> yeah. Like, when Nynaeve realizes that Mogidian isn't, like, waiting to throw something extra at her because she's already throwing everything she has she's at got- her. Yeah. yeah, and she has this moment of, oh, my God, I'm facing one of the Forsaken, and I'm holding yeah. my own. And it's yeah. like, God damn, girl, you get it. I love yes. that part. Yes, yeah. it's such a great moment. So good. It's really, like, I feel the empowerment for her. I'm just like, you know, like, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's such a good character. I really enjoy her. Um, so, yeah, those were the things that I had as, like, little spoilers and nuggets that i pulled out from the second chapter um should we continue with what we were talking about last week (laughs) okay yes i think we should yeah we had a message from our friend robert and we you can hear it here Uh if you would like um we'll replay it hey really enjoyed the first episode uh if you guys ever want to have a look at some very silly discussions uh, google the crimson rod karen growl uh, that you guys uh, spoke about earlier in the episode and have a read of some of the old forum posts trying to think of what it did. Uh, thanks. And, of course, it did not disappoint. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> it sure didn't. Um, I thought this was really good. It's okay. For one, it's it's funny. But 
two, it's it's interesting because it is a mystery. Like no yeah. one really knows. And I, um, my very first reaction when I read that, I texted you, Tracy, and I was like, "Oh my god." Um, so was that some kind of like sex toy, Terangriol? <laughs> like what <laughs> happened? So that yeah. was my immediate like, okay, that was what I thought. Mm-hmm. I'm sure if I read this, you know, when I was younger, it, it probably would have, I probably would have like skipped over it, but yeah. Right, yeah. So, um, so on the Dragon Mount, that's where we found it. It's uh, Dragon Mount is a Wheel of Time community. We'll put a link to this page in our show notes as well. Um, but a lot of people had the same assumption that it's yeah. it's a sex toy. Um, and one of the members on here, and this is so funny, this is posted from 2012, so, like, (laughs) almost eight years ago, and we're still talking about it, um, so this, this person says, it's not a sex toy, that's not, that's just an assumption by readers based on the vague notion of the situation, um, maybe, I mean, maybe, but who knows, um, and then... So someone, whiz bang, said, maybe it did not have the intended designed effect. Remember, she doesn't know what it is or how to use it. So when she is probing it and it makes her think of fire, then she wakes up the next morning. We don't know what she did while out, but it probably wasn't what the original intent of the rod was. Maybe she only channeled a single fine weave of fire when more is needed to activate it. Um... So rather than acting as a personal massager, it only increased her lust. Maybe she went around flirting with anything that moved and generally acted like a cat in heat. Her (laughs) friends managed to confine her to her room, and once it became apparent that she was not in her right mind, but not before everyone saw her flirting and trying to kiss everyone. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was really funny. Yeah. I think I, I I have to agree with this one. I think that's probably the closest to the truth i guess of this mystery like yeah. like it's almost like a um almost like a party drug or something like lowering <laughs> your you know like it completely like maybe lowered her inhibitions and then yeah. she kind of was just like oh i'm going to go like you know like flirt and dance and talk and be very yeah. you know <laughs> well so another member posted uh Ozzy Ayil said so the red rod is basically the tear angriel equivalent of several tequila shots on spring break. <laughs> <laughs> and then I did see later on someone mentioned that, and I think it's in Winter's Heart, that um, Elaine makes the comment like she could just have enough to drink that she dances naked on a, on um, a table on a table Mm -hmm. and avienda and brigitta like lose their shit like they can't Mm -hmm. help but laugh and min is kind of like why are you laughing so (laughs) i think maybe like maybe that's the answer maybe she got completely like she was on another level and just like dancing on tables naked and they just Mm -hmm. had to like pull her out (laughs) but not before all of the kinswoman and everyone else saw her but Mm -hmm. oh poor 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 Elaine (laughs) it's just trying to study yeah yeah and just trying to make Terangriel like the the amazing woman she is um but I thought that was really helpful. So thank you, Robert, for yeah. leaving us a message. It was definitely worth diving into. It was super fun. Yeah. 
I don't think I have anything to add on the Crimson Rod Terrangrail. Do you? No, I think we covered it. I mean, there's, I mean, we could, we could spend probably, you know, half an hour laughing about it, but yeah, I think for the most part, yeah. Yeah. If anyone else has any speculations or suggestions for us to like dig into on that, please feel free to like add to the conversation. That's kind of what we want to do is build up a community and conversation around the book. Send us a send us a, a voice message on Anchor yeah. or our email or anything. Yeah. yeah. Anything. We'll we'll read out your message if you don't want to leave us a voice message. It's totally fine. Yes. So some news mm-hmm. on the show. <laughs> yes. Let's do okay, it. Okay, so this came out on Wednesday and yeah. um I'm still like freaking out about it because <laughs> I've been waiting so long to see Min mm-hmm. and now we have a Min and mm-hmm. oh my god she is awesome it's an actress named Kay Alexander mm-hmm. and I think someone on Twitter posted a video of her doing like martial arts really so yes <clears throat> so she's a badass so I'm almost wondering like will we get like some action like sequences with men because she always does like her flourishes with her knives that like Tom taught her yeah so like who knows maybe we get like a really like kick-ass men that might have a little bit more action involved in certain things because I think that's one of the things maybe the book towards the end was I felt like maybe I was missing a little bit of that like I wanted a little bit more from Min because Mm -hmm. she kind of is off like reading and yeah kind of uh she's she's almost set aside but I mean she has like these really great um she does have some really great point of views and whatnot throughout the series but yeah, maybe we'll get like a kick-ass Min where she's, you know, holding her own, you know, mm-hmm. because like when Rand gets captured and he's in a box, like she's getting like tortured basically. So like mm-hmm. maybe we get like this more like feisty, you know, she can hold her own type of character. Yeah. And I've always kind of felt that way about Min anyway, like the fact that she dresses like a boy and she's really mm-hmm. independent and she doesn't want to be like, at the beck and call of any man, and, like, how she, like, completely hates having to wear a dress when she's in the White Tower and has to, like, act all girly and stuff. When like, she's Elmindrida. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, like, just how much she hates that. Like, Min, to me, feels like this striding, forceful, mm-hmm. I'll-do-what-I-want kind of character, and mm-hmm. I've always really liked that about her. I mean, on top of the fact that she has those visions and stuff and yeah how she's always trying to like figure out what they mean and sometimes she knows right away what they mean and sometimes she doesn't so yeah I'm excited to see them give us this really independent strong men because I mean that's another thing about the Jordan series is that the women are not damsels in distress right. I mean how how often does Mac get chewed out for trying to protect like Nynaeve and Elaine or whoever and he's like well fat lot of good that did like tried to save you and here you are just saving yourself so yeah I like that so much about the series that we get such strong female characters I agree so we also before we move on to the actress who was um announced for Swan um there was quite an uproar around the actress that was chosen for men um 
like people who felt that her ethnicity was wrong um she's the parent or she's the parent she's the child of one japanese parent and one chinese parent um and so a lot of people just felt like she didn't look anything like what they thought men should look like Mm -hmm. um and another thing people brought up was her age which i thought was um she's supposed to be older than rand in the books yeah and i mean i think i think it took a minute but i found that i think she's like in real life 39 years old and i could be wrong but i don't know for sure it was actually really hard to find her age um so that could actually be wrong information because if she's 39 she looks fucking amazing um <laughs> she's practically eyes to die she looks so yes. good yes <laughs> um and like people were pointing out they're like Rand's only supposed to be 18 and if this woman is 39 then what the heck and someone pointed out that like well no one was throwing a fit when like Nynaeve and Lan were hooking up and they have a huge age difference and right. I was like yes right. that like <laughs> why are you throwing a fit about this and the actor that plays Rand I think is like 25 so there okay. may be an age difference between the two of them but I will just about guarantee that it's not going to look that way on screen and men's no. supposed to be older anyway like yeah so and I understand, like, I understand when someone doesn't fit your head canon. like, when mm-hmm. you're reading the series and you think, like, okay, like, this is, you know, your mind has how, your mind has its own picture of how these characters look like. For sure. And, I mean, I'll, like, I'll admit when um, the actor for Lan was cast, Daniel mm-hmm. Henney, I was kind of like, oh, like, that's not what I expected. Mm-hmm. And it took me maybe a minute. And then after I, you know, watched him in other things, I was like, okay, like, this guy is, like, super athletic. He's really good looking, by the way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Agreed. And he's a badass. And the more I, you know, thought about it, I was like, yeah, that totally fits. And then um, not too long ago... Um, after reading these first, uh, this first chapter in New Spring, um, it mentions how Lan is wearing his Hidori. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to look it up to get more background on what this was, what it looked like. Yeah. And instead of actually going to like a Wheel of Time wiki or something like that, I ended up on regular wiki. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, what's this? And so like the... The Hidori method is actually a way of, like, um, Japanese sword polishing. So I thought that was really cool. And, you know, Mm -hmm. if Robert Jordan, like, integrated something like that into the characters from Malkier, then, Mm -hmm. like, maybe that was more of, like, what he intended. Maybe Land isn't supposed to be a white guy. Yeah. And if you look at the photos of, like, the... um, the artwork of like Bukama, like he mm-hmm. doesn't look like a white guy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I mean that that makes me happy to think that like okay, like maybe these casting directors are like really well more like inverse um, and more you know doing all of this research that we don't even think about. Yeah. So I think it's a really good. Um, I think it's a good casting call. I think Daniel Henney is going to be great. Yeah, and I feel the same way. Like. I know initially when I first saw who they had chosen for um, 
the Emmons Field Five. Mm. Um, it definitely did not fit what, like what you said, it didn't fit my headcanon. And I think I had that moment as well where I was like, wait, what are they doing? Is this going to ruin how this like appears on screen? And the more I started thinking about it, the more I started talking, I think probably even with you about Mm -hmm. what this was going to look like, the more I was like, this actually makes a lot of sense. And it really is, I don't know, if you are a Japanese or Chinese girl watching this show and you see badass men doing badass things, then that has to feel good for you too because you're Mm -hmm. being represented on screen. And there are plenty of things out there that use like, mostly white casting and i think mm-hmm. we're i think we are we're at a time late. where we deserve some goddamn diversity <laughs> agreed agreed like we need to we need to embrace the fact that what we see on screen should reflect what we see in the world around us mm-hmm. and it's i mean it's about it's about goddamn time yeah. it just is so yeah. i'm actually really excited that they've gone in this direction that I've had a chance to kind of work out how it initially felt and now how it feels and now I'm just excited like yeah. my headcanon has started to change to like images of the people especially for a queen like the actress that yes. plays her I cannot remember her name but she's in Picnic at Hanging Rock which also has Natalie Dormer in it who I adore Ooh, um, yes I like her a lot and I'm trying to remember if it was an Amazon or Netflix special I don't think it's out anymore it was really short um like maybe six episodes Mm -hmm. but the the actress that plays Egwene is in that and she's really good and she's really beautiful like Egwene is supposed to be beautiful like she catches Gowan and Galad's eye so she has to be yes really pretty I guess yeah um and this this actress definitely definitely is and I love it I'm wondering, like, how are th- how in the hell are they going to cast Lanfear? Because, like, Lanfear is supposed to be the most gorgeous person alive, but, like, all of these right. characters are so beautiful. <laughs> the- I have been wondering the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, CGI? Who- like, how? <laughs> <laughs> they just make this composite of the most beautiful person they can through yeah. a computer. Like, yeah. Yeah, I've been wondering the same thing. And I've been wondering the same thing about Galad, too. Because, like... It's yes. it's mentioned yes. all the time how even Aes Sedai like check him out and are like oh check out that check out that guy look at him mm. Sh- yeah my favorite What's is it? when Brigitte, Brigitte Brigitte is like he has no business being so pretty right <laughs> God bless Brigitte she's like oh she misses her um, Geidel cane and yeah. she's always walking around like not loving pretty men like she mm-hmm. wants her like normal you know, regular ass guy. Like, Rita, you're a woman of my own heart. (laughs) I love her. I love her. She's such a, again, I I don't need a six foot seven blacksmith or anything like that. Just, I want my Geidel cane. (laughs) Yeah. I really like um, the scene between her and Uno when they're in the... Yeah, when they're in the menagerie and they're getting ready to, like, face the riots that are happening in the town. And she, like, grabs him by the back of the neck and, like, gets, like, face to face with him, like, and just talks to him, like, soldier to soldier, but also woman to man. And it's just, like, just one more moment where she's this amazing character. So I totally dig her. So good. Yeah. I, I almost, like, I almost want to ship... Brigitta and Uno together because 
they both cuss like Mm -hmm. the dirtiest sailors. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Bloody this, bloody that, flaming this, flaming that. I love it. Um, So then the other actress that has been picked out is for Swan Sanchez. And that's Sophie Okonedo. Is that right? Um, Hopefully I said her name right. If I didn't, somebody please correct me. And really, feel free to correct us on any of the names we might be mispronouncing. Because as I'm sure most of us have had troubles with, like, remembering how to pronounce things. Or it's a... I mean, this book comes with its own fucking glossary. Like, (laughs) its own language. All of these weird words. So, like, if you know the proper pronunciation of something and we've goofed it, let us know. But I think she's beautiful. Oh my right. god, yes. She, I don't she know has, if anything else she's in. Do you? Um, I had looked it up earlier, but I'm totally blanking out on it right now. But she did play some royal character from some mm-hmm. series. But I've seen photos of her where she's like in chainmail, mm. looking like she could just, you know eat you alive like total (laughs) badass moment and then Mm -hmm. I've seen some very like regal photos of her and to be honest almost every other picture you honestly can't tell how old she is you know yeah she she really is um she has a really like youthful look sometimes Mm -hmm. and I'm really interested because they had cast a young girl also for Swan Sanchez. So yeah. are we going to get flashbacks maybe to her being like a little fisher girl and getting mm. like picked up by the White Tower or mm-hmm. something like that? I think that was something that, oh, that is something though that was kind of interesting on this chapter is um, Moraine is talking about how like when she was being um, figured out that she could change yes. and they came to get her as an Aes Sedai, like it was pretty much like almost people throwing rose petals at her feet they threw a party for her yeah yeah and poor poor swan sanche was like (laughs) they just like throw her on a boat and they're like ship her off you know off you go yeah see you you later yeah Yeah. well and that they're both orphans that was something else that i thought was like the camaraderie is yeah the camaraderie is so great in these first you know this first the second chapter here Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, so I didn't notice any, like, discomfort, I guess, around the choice for the actress for Swan Sanchez. Um, she, she's I, literally, like, pretty much what I pictured in my head. So, like, yeah. I know there's references to her having blue eyes, but I must have just never even caught it because I pictured her of not, you know... I didn't, I didn't picture her as a white woman, I guess. But I don't, you know, everyone's different. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, again, it's going to be really nice to have that level of diversity. Yeah. This is something that had drew me to the expanse. Like, mm-hmm. not everyone is white. Like, not all sci-fi or fantasy nerds are white. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's nice, it's nice to get, like, a broader... Um, recognition of the fans because yes. I mean Wheel of Time has been translated into numerous languages and numerous cultures so to be able to pull those cultures in and see them in a physical show I think is going to be really 
wonderful for all of the fans. Like it's representing yeah. all of them instead of just a smaller section of them. Well, yeah, that's like look at our last podcast last week. Like, mm-hmm. maybe, oh my god, yeah, yeah, maybe half of our <laughs> listeners are from the U.S., mm-hmm. but you know, it's Australia, England, um, the Netherlands, Italy, the Netherlands, South Korea. Finland, South Korea, Philippines. Yeah. So I mean, it's just you know, we we see this. Our fan our fan base is not all white Americans and Europeans. Like that's exactly, just not how it is. <laughs> yeah, it's really. I think it's going to be a really lovely experience to see it like this. And yeah. I know we feel really grateful for like the numerous people who have listened to our first episode and how far reaching it's been already. Like. Definitely. That was absolutely mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Should anything we go else? Head to the. I think I'm good. Are we good? Yeah. So thanks so much for joining us on this stretch of the road to Tarvalin. We are so excited to share our love with the series with other fans. We have been seriously just blown away by how many of you listened to our first episode and we're very eager to see how far we can grow in this truly amazing community thank you everyone we will Mm -hmm. be launching shows once a week and hope that you continue to join us join us next week for a recap on chapters three and four of new spring let us know what you thought of our content correct us send us things we may have missed uh to our email at roadtotarvalon at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at roadtotarvalon, which Amber manages, and you really shouldn't miss the super fun polls she comes up with. <laughs> um, and I did finally remember my uh, Twitter handle. I've actually been on there quite a bit, and it's been really fun. Uh, but you can find me at blue too. And we talked about this earlier this week, about how I want to be blue, but I have come to the realization that I'm really a brown. I'm a brown sedai. <laughs> Uh, my love of research and libraries is just far too strong but if I could I would be I would be blue but I'm I don't know if I'm like that drawn to that as much as I am reading books and stuff so anyway um and we're also on Instagram at road to Tarvalon um and if you have the anchor app and I think you can probably access it from whatever app you're listening on um, you can give us, leave us a voice message like Robert did last week. Um, thank you, Robert. Thank, thank you, you so Robert. Much. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then if you let us know if we can use it in upcoming episodes, that would be great because the more we can amplify other voices around this conversation, um, I think the happier we'll be. And I think that would just yes. be really fun to like get a bunch of people together to do that. Am I missing any place where we have stuff? Nope. We have Twitter, I think Gmail. That's it for okay. Now. And we're not doing Facebook. No. No Facebook. We just, we're not feeling it. We're Mm -mm. we're not, yeah, sorry, Zuck, but. (laughs) (laughs) Sucks to be Zuck. (laughs) So until next week. Thanks for joining us. Safe travels. And and walk walk in the the light. light.